Hello, and welcome to episode number 83 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacademian. Within the vast historical literature associated with the UFO phenomenon, there are references to numerous kinds of craft sighted and numerous kinds of entities encountered. Interestingly, even within a subset of a certain group of entities, distinct patterns sometimes emerge, suggesting specific enterprises have been undertaken at various points in history by these various groups. One such unique pattern took place between sometime in the late 20th century, stretching up until around the turn of the millennium. This specific endeavor was concentrated around what have come to be known as abductions. In other words, this specific enterprise involved not just sightings, but people being abruptly, physically taken from their homes to some other place, whether this be an apparent spacecraft or some alternate realm, where specific actions were undertaken, involving both physical examinations and what can only be described as activities pertaining to a large-scale reproductive program. This extensive reproductive program, involving at minimum untold thousands of human beings, saw men and women having reproductive material taken from them, eggs from women and sperm from men, as part of a scheme to produce what have come to be known as hybrid beings, entities part conventionally human and part something else. The question around the nature of this something else is a matter of some debate, one that we'll be delving into in this episode. Once the initial extraction of a reproductive material had taken place, Many abductees slash contactees slash experiencers, pick your designation of choice, and those involved have differences of opinion on what they prefer to be called, were later shown what, for all intents and purposes, appeared to be their very own hybrid offspring. Sometimes these others, most often colloquially referred to as aliens, would ask these human abductees to interact with said offspring to fulfill some form of developmental bonding. Said abductees slash contactees often mentioned feeling both a deep connection to these apparently hybrid children, while also sometimes feeling a sense of revulsion arising from their atypical form. As I mentioned, this specific hybridization enterprise seemed to phase out around the turn of the millennium. At this point, many of these abductees slash contactees slash experiencers were telepathically told that they wouldn't be seeing the apparent aliens nearly as much anymore, indicating the Enterprise had been successful enough that a page was now being turned. Of course, the specificity of this entire Enterprise raises many intriguing questions. What was the ultimate purpose of this hybridization program? What role, if any, do these apparently hybrid offspring play in the future of human civilization? And in what way might this Enterprise serve as a kind of failsafe against the potential of a coming Earth cataclysm that experiencers of this type were warned was bound to be our civilization's fate should we fail to turn from our misguided, erring ways. These are the profound but mind-bending issues we'll seek to find some clarity around in this, the 83rd episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction, Today we're going to be talking about alien abduction, at least that's what it's colloquially referred to. Much of the cases we'll be drawing from today are from Dr. Johnny Mack's groundbreaking book, Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens. As I also mentioned in the introduction, here we're referring to what seems to be a specific reproductive program 
a hybridization program that was undertaken by some sort of apparently alien group from the late 20th century up until around the turn of the millennium. Which is to say it's not that abductions in the broadest sense don't still happen, but this particular program did seem to have a specific lifespan that drew to a close sometime around the turn of the millennium. Again, as I said in the introduction, many of the abductees slash contactees slash experiencers actually experienced telepathic messages around that time at the turn of the millennium saying that they would not be seeing these others so much anymore. And the implication was that this program had been successful and that now it was drawing to a close. Although there was hints perhaps that they would hear from them more later. And I would suggest that even some of those people have experienced more telepathic messages, especially more recently, which might be important, significant, pertinent to what we're talking about these days in terms of the possibility of a coming cataclysm, some final chapter in human history, or at least the potential of it. And if nothing else, the turning of a significant page in human history. Now, before we dive into cases from this book, we should just paint the picture historically here. This book came out in 1994. Again, the book is Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens by Dr. John E. Mack. Now, what's interesting is that, of course, that was a very different time than now. We sometimes forget how different things are now as opposed to then. Now we're hearing about UFOs, UAP, and sightings and whatnot almost daily, even in some of the mainstream media. And the notion is that perhaps disclosure is not that far ahead that we really are seeing moves in that direction. But looking back to the 1990s, that was not the case. Pretty much at that point, UFOs were still considered fringe. It was X-Files episodes, kind of enthusiasts and that kind of thing. And certainly the notion of alien abduction, actually being taken by alien beings up into spacecraft and then having bizarre, sometimes seemingly ritualistic hybridization, reproductive experiments taking place was certainly not a mainstream notion. And so when people began to have these encounters, you can imagine how shocking it was to them, not just because of the uncanny nature of the experiences, but because there really was no precedent in human history. And because of that, of course, many of these people had nowhere to turn. When they tried to explain what was happening to family members, they were often rejected and there was questioning about their mental health, of course, because this, again, was not on the radar for the vast, vast majority of our population. And so these people, while they tried to find different ways of dealing with this by going to different authorities and whatnot, it just wasn't something they could find. They couldn't find authorities that were willing to talk about this who had any familiarity with this. Even official or semi-official groups like MUFON didn't really deal with this back then. This was all brand new in our cultural zeitgeist altogether. And I just want to make that point to remind us all just how discombobulating, terrifying, shocking these events were. Again, not just because of the nature of the events, which were shocking in themselves, but because there was nowhere to turn. This was not part of our cultural milieu at all. So again, these people felt very alone. And that's where someone like John Mack came in because again, he actually listened to these people. And while he was a skeptic of this entire notion to begin with, because of his years of experience in research and as a psychotherapist, it became clear to him these people were rational. They were coherent. They were not suffering from any kind of psychopathology. They seemed to be recounting 
actual experiences and certainly their body language and even their body output in terms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress symptoms, seem to speak to the veracity of these claims. Something really did happen, even if it stretches our understanding of what is real. That's what he concluded, and he proceeded with that notion in mind. I'd also like to remind us here that while times have changed and the notions of UFOs slash UAP in our midst is much more of a mainstream conversation now, and the government certainly seems to be not only taking it seriously, which they always did, but what's different now is they're taking it seriously and they're acknowledging there is a there there, even if it's only kind of a coded kind of message at this point. But the general public is slowly being acclimatized to this notion that there are anomalous objects or phenomena in our skies and elsewhere, hence we have Arrow which is tasked to get to the bottom of what these objects are, what these phenomena are that seem to be with impunity coming over U.S. airspace and whatnot. But again, all of the focus there is on the objects, on the phenomena in the sky, right? Not on what's actually happening to people. We are not yet publicly dealing with the messages experiencers have received, the encounters that experiencers have been through. So in that sense, things haven't changed all that much. And I can tell you that experiencers still feel often left out of the public conversation right now because they are not being listened to. They're not being sought out for their testimony. Hopefully that will change soon. Okay, let's address something else that I hinted at in the introduction. The question of what do we call these others? Now, on the one hand, we often refer to them as aliens. And even this book is subtitled Human Encounters with Aliens. I'll just remind you there that aliens doesn't necessarily mean space aliens. As I mentioned recently on a Liminal Frames podcast episode, I think it was, I had a friend who had a band in high school called Alien and the Psycho, and that actually is a translation of a passage in the Old Testament where actually the alien there was a different human tribe, right? So that's interesting. This term doesn't necessarily mean extraterrestrial. And it, even if it means extraterrestrial, it doesn't mean that it might not have some sort of genetic link to us. And I raise that because there is some evidence that these others, these particular others, at least some of them, do have a link to us. Now, some would suggest this means that they are us from the future, perhaps time-traveling neo-humans, or as Michael Masters has coined, extra-tempestrials. So when some people say non-human intelligence and land on that as a new term, I sometimes am more comfortable with a term like non-conventional human intelligence, because again, we don't know that it's absolutely not human. Even again, according to the lore of some of the Roswell crash material, there are hints that there was a genetic link between us and them in terms of the bodies that were recovered from the scene, which again raises questions around what does alien mean here? How could there be this link? Furthermore, we sometimes refer to them as visitors, but the thing is, they may have been here as long as we have, perhaps even longer. And in that sense, they're not really visitors, although I guess you could argue that they are visitors to our consciousness in terms of our awareness of their presence. But nevertheless, you see what the challenge is in terms of how to refer to them. That's why I often opt for the others, just because they are in some way not exactly us, even if they're somehow linked to us. And so that feels like a term that is the best fit often, but not always. And again, it just points to the fact that because we're still trying to figure out exactly who they are, who we are for that matter, and how we may be linked, we're going to have challenges knowing exactly how to refer to them. And perhaps there is no perfect term. 
All right, so here we're speaking about alien abduction. Now, this is a notion rooted in popular culture because there actually are stories now, accounts that have come out, and most people are now at least aware of the elements of these reports. And they include the following elements. Number one, missing time. Abductees often report periods of time during which they cannot account for their whereabouts or activities. Two, presence of aliens. Abductees frequently report being taken aboard a spacecraft and encountering non-human entities, which are often described as gray-skinned, large-eyed, and hairless beings. Number three, medical examinations. Many abductees report undergoing medical procedures, including the insertion of implants or the taking of tissue samples. Number four, telepathic communication. Abductees often report receiving information or instructions from the aliens telepathically, that is mind-to-mind -mind contact and communication. Number five, paralysis. Abductees frequently describe being unable to move during the experience. Number six, fear and anxiety. The experience of alien abduction is often described as terrifying with abductees reporting feelings of fear, anxiety, and helplessness. Now, regarding this last piece, a key distinction to make here is that these particular kinds of encounters are particularly shocking, more so than sightings in the sky, even when those involve telepathic downloads, because these specific abduction encounters involve coming into close contact with beings of a decidedly non-conventional nature. Their form, their shape, their presence is shocking in itself. And also because the encounters are, number one, abrupt. One moment you're alone and the next moment these beings are there with you in close quarters, often after passing through solid walls, no less. And number two, because these encounters are physical in nature, meaning they manifest as solidly there as anything or anyone else in our waking state consensus reality. These are not dreams, visions, or examples of hypnagogia, as skeptics try to insist. Now, regarding the recounting of experiences with apparent aliens in apparently abduction experiences, much of this material arises from hypnotic regression. That is to say, a therapist puts a person under hypnosis, and then with the aid of that hypnotic regression, they are able to recover more material than they necessarily remembered consciously. But we should make the point here that many of these people do have conscious memories, and it's the conscious memories that led them to the therapist to begin with. If they had no memories of this, they wouldn't have sought out someone like John Mack in this book, Abduction, to begin with. These people were not suffering from any kind of malady otherwise. It was the nature of these experiences, which they consciously remembered, that made them seek out some sort of assistance to make sense of what was going on, again, because it did seem to stretch the notions of our consensus reality, our model of reality altogether. So I want to make that point. These people sought out a therapist like John Mack because they consciously remembered having experiences that were uncanny in nature. And in this case, the therapy helped them uncover more memories to bring more clarity to them. Now, I want to make this clear. While hypnosis done poorly can lead to false memories, it's also my perspective that regression done properly according to strict protocols can be helpful for people seeking to gain more clarity on their encounters when they already have conscious memory of an encounter. That's key. Now, speaking of hypnotic regression as a tool, Kathleen Marden has recently weighed in on this matter. 
Now, who is she? She is a well-known UFO abduction researcher, author, and lecturer with 23 years of experience in the field. This is what she said recently in an article addressing hypnotic regression as a tool. Quote, The use of hypnosis to recover lost memories of missing time during a purported UFO abduction has engendered more controversy than nearly any other topic among UFO researchers and anti-UFO research skeptics, deniers, and disinformants. Scholars point out that although hypnosis facilitates the recall of accurate information, we may unwittingly manufacture details that were not previously part of the historical narrative, particularly when the hypnotist presses the client for detailed information that is not available in their conscious memories. Some radical critics extrapolate that imperfect hypnosis is reason to dismiss its use entirely. I disagree, quote unquote. Now she goes on to say, quote, hypnosis should not be used by investigators to determine if an individual has been taken to a non-human environment and developed amnesia for the event. We must rely on the witness's conscious recall and the physical and circumstantial evidence in support of the witness's statements prior to hypnosis, unquote. So a couple key points there. We should not be using hypnosis to try to see if there was an abduction event. We should only use it as a tool to further refine statements that were already made based on conscious recall. Secondly, she pointed to the fact that scholars do consider this a valid means most of the time. It's just when it's used improperly that problems arise. Now, speaking of that, what exactly is hypnosis? Why does this work? This is how she defines it. Quote, Some researchers claim that no one knows what hypnosis is. However, psychiatrist David Spiegel, medical director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine, informs us that hypnosis involves disassociation in a structured setting, whereby one idea is brought into focus while the field of vision is narrowed. All other competing thoughts are omitted and one's attention is concentrated in a hypermemory. In other words, we enter into a state of intense concentration that permits us to filter out distractions and to focus our attention on a certain past event. This leads to better recall of information than our conscious memory can elicit. Unquote. So that's key. It's about zeroing in on a memory, not adding details to the memory. And again, that is only a risk when it is done poorly, when the hypnotic regression is done poorly, or when you have a therapist actually trying to ask leading questions that can take the memory in a different direction and actually produce false memories as a result. But again, done properly, this is about creating a disassociation in a structured setting so as to zero in on an actual memory. All right, now let's get to more of the specifics of the nature of these encounters, the nature of these so-called abduction encounters. Now, again, we already dealt with the fact that these are very abrupt and shocking, ontologically shocking, which, by the way, is a term that Mac actually coined, has to do with the fact that these beings are present in apparently our physical reality. People can feel them when they touch them. When they press against you, you can feel it. You can see evidence that they're moving around your room when they suddenly appear there by passing through a wall or something like that. So first of all, you have to deal with the ontological shock of these beings that should not exist, suddenly being there and apparently manifesting just as real as anything else, the wall they came through, or perhaps the person sleeping in the room next to you. They're just as real as that. But in addition, you are then quickly taken 
to a different environment altogether. Now, sometimes this environment seems to be in an alternate kind of dimension or alternate realm, alternate state of consciousness. We don't really have a great way to think about these things because this particular construct that people are taken to, report being taken to, seems to be not exactly aligned with our space-time construct as we usually experience it. Now, again, our model doesn't know what to do with this yet. And so we quickly try to drop it into something like a dream or a vision or some example of hypnagogia, like I said before, which is the state between a waking state and a sleep state. But again, this seems to be really happening, but it also stretches our understanding of what can really happen. Now, what's also interesting is even though these are ontologically shocking experiences, and sometimes these others don't have what you might call a great bedside manner. They're not very communicative in terms of emotional awareness, in terms of helping people feel comfortable immediately. Although many experiences will tell you they do have an emotional component, it just manifests differently than ours does. Which again, shouldn't be surprising because if they've evolved to be mostly telepathic in nature, then their communication happens completely mind to mind. You don't need to have gestures and facial expressions like we do, even tone of voice, because all of that can be communicated telepathically. And in addition to that, they may just be more emotionally muted, have a narrower range of emotion than we do. Now, does that automatically excuse sometimes the abrupt nature of these encounters? Does it excuse the fact that people are not dealt with in as warm a manner as we might want to see from apparently advanced, sophisticated beings that these seem to be for all intents and purposes? No, there is a question there. But again, it's not that they're not emotional, they just have a narrow range of emotion in terms of expression. And perhaps because they are different than us, either because they've evolved to be that way, if they're us from the future perhaps, or just because they are different than us altogether, they don't necessarily understand perhaps what this puts us through, how shocking this is for the human system that has evolved to be aware of certain kinds of possibilities and a possibility like this makes us go into fight or flight because of our evolutionary impulse. They may not be aware of that. They may not be accounting for that, which again is not to entirely excuse the entire thing, but just to say there may be ways to make sense of this that suggest it's not necessarily cruel behavior. And the reason why I also raised that possibility is because there's this uncanny dual aspect to these encounters, because on the one hand, they can be quite ontologically shocking. In fact, almost 100% of the time they are, at least initially. But these experiencers also report that these experiences end up being spiritually transformative much of the time. They even come to see these beings sometimes as intermediaries between us and God, or source, if you will, the source of the universe. Indeed, furthermore, these experiencers often report that this realm they're in with these others feels more real than this one does, which is confusing to us, again, because we have no contrast. We have nothing to compare this to, those of us who have not had this particular experience. And again, when we hear alternate realm, alternate state of consciousness, that to many people in the general public will feel less real, something other than reality. And yet what's interesting is the experience, the visceral experience, is that that actually feels more real than real. That is to say, more real than this. But this is a key part we cannot get past. Again, the vast majority of people, especially when given enough time to reflect on their experiences and to overcome the initial ontological shock, a vast majority come to see these experiences as 
interpreted as positive. Because again, we always have interpretation being part of the experience here. You have an initial experience and then you interpret it based on your models of reality, your expectations and your interactions with human beings over time. And that will, of course, reflect on how you think about these experiences. But when people are especially given time to reflect, they often come to see these as spiritually transformative and ultimately positive. And again, as we've discussed on other episodes, this often results in an actual worldview change where people are quite different than they used to be prior to the event. And they don't walk around in fear and turmoil. Most of them don't. Most of them actually are changed in a positive way, what we would consider a positive way, according to measurements like they become less materialistic. They become more concerned about the environment and animals. They become more concerned about their neighbors and more ready to change their behavior, even change their lifestyle or their career sometimes to reflect the change in perspective they've undergone because of these experiences which again, flies in the face of what we think about initially when we think about abduction. Because again, there's a lot of negative hype with that, especially considering the way that Hollywood and whatnot has often portrayed these events. They often hype up the fear, the shock, the turmoil. And often this is because this is what sells tickets, unfortunately, based on the current center of gravity of our consciousness on this planet. I also want to make the point that this spiritual transformation, this change in worldview, is not an unintended byproduct of these experiences. To the contrary, these beings, whatever they are, whether they're us from the future or an alternate version of us or a alien being altogether, they go out of their way to make it very clear to the human beings they're communicating with that human civilization is on a crash course, that if we do not change our current trajectory, bad things await us and not because of some sort of punishment doled out by some sort of God or some higher intelligent being, but because this is just what happens when you embark on a trajectory that is doomed to failure, when you are part of a system that is unsustainable. And that's what they see when they see not just our consciousness based so much on fear and greed and negative elements like that, but also what we're doing to the environment, how we're basically killing the planet that we exist upon. They see that, they see that it's not going well, and again, if they are us from the future or even beings that seem to be able to move through time, and they certainly seem to demonstrate that, then we should take this very seriously, I would suggest, because this is not just idle banter. They are perhaps relying on what they know will happen according to our current trajectory. And so they go out of their way to impress upon human beings that they interact with. You must wake up, and not just you, but your collective civilization must wake up. You must change course where something really negative awaits you, something like a cataclysm. And again, as I've said before on recent podcasts, that might not be just some random cosmic event. What seems to be suggested here is that it's actually something of our own making. So this is something we really need to take to heart. This is central to these encounters. And here I would also add that while these particular kinds of abductions as part of this reproduction program seem to have come to a close, Experiencers are still having telepathic downloads with these beings and other beings and are being impressed upon again about the doomsday coming for us if we don't change course. So this is not something that ended around the turn of millennium. These messages are still very much front and center. And indeed, you could suggest they're actually increasing both in terms of number and in terms of amplitude, in terms of the urgency that is passed on. 
Now, again, as I already mentioned, many of the experiencers of this particular historical reproductive program say it's not just that the experience was ontologically shocking, even though it was, and then sometimes traumatizing, very often the case. They often come to believe that it actually is part of some move towards a greater good. And to that end, I want to quote from the book here, quote, Jerry does not feel that they want to cause me fear and pain and agony. And deep down inside, I think that what they're doing is somehow necessary. It has to do, she said, with races, beings, or whatever, coming together to make another creation. This was very important, she said. And as a single person, compared to this big, huge thing going on, I should look beyond myself and know that it's for the greater good, unquote. And then later on, this same abductee is quoted as saying, quote, At the end of this session, Jerry said, I really do think that they do exist. They are real and they are interacting with us. Obviously not in any form that we're used to. There's a reason they're doing this, she added. She feels that they are making, whatever you want to label it, another whole civilization. She does not know whether they're going to take it and place it somewhere else or it's going to be introduced here. Jerry, like many abductees, has dreams of the world as we know it coming to an end and relates her breeding role to this eventuality, unquote. Which again, this speaks to the fact that when these beings are being created, these hybrid beings, it raises the question, to what end? Some people believe that it's to populate a different planet somewhere else. But for many of these experiencers, there's this sense that, one, this could be a failsafe in case we wipe ourselves out, that they would have a way of introducing some element of humanity again, even though we would be a different version of ourselves because we would have the hybrid nature in terms of the alien input as well, a bit of half and half in other words. Or it could be that these hybrids will actually help us in the future. They will be introduced to the planet so that we can live in harmony together and perhaps both benefit from each other. There is this kind of symbiotic relationship often referred to, or at least implied. But at the same time, before we can get to this point in history where we could perhaps live side by side, they know that we have to overcome some of our fears, some of our fight or flight mechanism that's deeply part of the lizard brain that is part of our history. One of the abductees, Scott, talks about this when he talks about his human side first dealing with what these others represent and just how different they are and how he recognizes that his initial response is not necessarily reasonable. Quote, Scott grasped then why he had never wanted to look directly at the beings. With some struggle, he said, my humanist doesn't want to see this. What is this? I asked. Them, the human side, he continued, cannot handle the other side. The human being in him reacts with fear like an animal. They appear to be animals and you act like a scared animal. It's instinct. Nevertheless, he emphasized, humans must stop and realize that the aliens, whom as a child he called the Inkies because of their large black eyes, like ourselves, are alive. We need to learn that even though we look different and we think different, we're all life, unquote. Now, you notice there that he said the human part, which implies there being another part. And indeed, this is also a very interesting, intriguing part of the narrative when it comes to the historical literature to do with abductees. Many of them come to believe, realize that they actually have a hybrid nature themselves, that they have a different kind of persona, sometimes a different history from a different lifetime even, as a part of one of them, quote unquote, one of these others. They even have memories sometimes of experiencing life as one of them and can even experience how they relate to life differently. 
This is what he says at one point about what perhaps happened to them that made them so wary of the course that we are on. Quote, At this point in the session, Scott shifted to perceiving from the alien perspective, and he saw the Earth as a blue body below him. He had chosen to come here from another planet because it was, quote, closest to where we're from, unquote. He did not know the name of that planet, but it was yellow, mostly desert, and lacking water. Once there had been trees and water, but something having to do with science, he does not know just what, went wrong, and his people went underground. Scott felt sick inside and sobbed as he told of how science destroyed our planet. Naturally, I was curious to know if Scott had any other further information about how this had come about, but he did not except to observe that somehow the alien species knew before the destruction occurred, but seems to have been powerless to prevent it. After the regression, he recalled that the destruction had occurred because of something they made they couldn't stop, and that on their planet, the aliens live in an artificial environment, unquote. So again, this is very interesting. You could look at this different ways. You could say this is actually a different planet, and these really are extraterrestrial beings in the purest sense of that term, or you could perhaps even suggest that they are us from the future in an alternate Earth or the Earth in a different timeline or just a future Earth. And that what they're referring to is actually them experiencing the consequences of our actions to some degree. And that, again, would speak to why they're so pressing about this coming cataclysm, this problem that we do face if we don't change the course of our current trajectory. Now, speaking to this possibility that they could be us from the future, or at least related to us in some way, there are actually times that abductees that are part of these regressions that Dr. John Mack is conducting actually refer to this notion of the future being referenced in their contact with these beings. Quoting again from the book here, quote, In the months prior to our first hypnosis session on August 11, 1992, Jerry continued to have abduction experiences, including one episode just three weeks before in which she consciously recalled seeing a UFO close up and being taken by humanoid beings whose attitude she felt was loving and benevolent into the ship. There she saw shelves with instruments and vials, was seated on a chair or table, and had a complex dialogue with aliens she felt were, quote, beyond what we would think is intelligent or even genius, unquote. Continuing with the quote here, quote, one of them explained that they came from so far into the future that she would not be able to comprehend. Jerry remembers saying to herself, this is great. I can see everything and I am so aware. In her journal, she concluded, I was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that what I was experiencing was real. They looked at me with their loving and all-knowing smile and simply said, yes. I then said, well, if this is real, then I am somehow living a double life. I had a feeling there was a definite reason that I and others like me were not aware of this other reality, at least not as aware as we are about this reality we have here and now. Unquote. Again, this speaks to the dual nature that some of these abductees end up experiencing after being in contact with these others, where they themselves even feel like they have another capacity within them, another persona that comes online sometimes, at least fully online, when they're in the presence of these others. Now, as many people realize, part of these abduction accounts also involve human beings being shown apocalyptic images of the earth, cataclysmic images, where the earth seems to be in great distress, and often the implication is because of the actions of humanity that our actions create this kind of scenario in the future. Now, at one point, one of these abductees actually 
asks about these theatrics, as she calls them. Why do they use these theatrics to communicate with us? Because sometimes it's not a literal thing. Sometimes it's more of a symbolic thing, even if the end result really does mean cataclysm, disaster, etc. Quoting from the book again, quote, She asked the aliens why they needed to use such theatrics to show her this, and their reply was, to make you understand, to comprehend the implications, to put you in the right frame of mind. And I'm kind of like, hey, now we're getting someplace. She also seemed to learn from this episode that certain emotions like love, caring, helpfulness, compassion are the key, whereas others like anger, hatred, and fear are not useful, especially fear. Fear is like the worst one. They were trying to get me to get over fear, and that's why they were trying to scare me so badly, because I would eventually get sick of it and get over it and get on to the more important things, unquote. Now again, perhaps some people would question this bedside manner, question if this is the best way to do it. But what she seems to gather from these experiences is they were actually trying to sort of shock her into a new level of awareness. And it is true, even when we look at some of the data around other kinds of transformations that lead to worldviews changing that have nothing to do with the UFO phenomenon or aliens, as it were. Often it is trauma that puts people into a frame of mind that allows for this catapulting into an entirely new way of seeing themselves and the world around them. So that seems to be part and parcel of what's going on here, that some of the shock is actually intended not just because it's an unfortunate byproduct of what they're doing as part of the hybridization experiment, but it's also meant to create a new level of awareness, a breakthrough. And even as Willie Strieber's talked about, the greatest possibility of transformation in the history of humankind. Now, getting back to this notion of them somehow being us, perhaps us from the future, or some alternate version of us, this is often referred to. And there's also this sense that perhaps in their evolutionary trajectory, they have taken a wrong turn that they're also trying to course correct. And this is part of what's in aim with this hybridization program. It's not just to change some of our negative tendencies, but also perhaps to change some of theirs or to recover things they've lost along the way. Quoting again from the book, quote, I asked Peter how our loving or open qualities might serve the beings. They are human too, he suggested, and in their own evolution have followed the path of almost rational intellectualizing and lost much of their emotions, and they want to get that back. And it's through our planet and through our race. They are humanoid, Peter said, and we're evolved from the same place. But we've stayed in our emotions and our emotions have ruled the planet. How we react as a race comes from our emotions. In their evolution, they chose to react from intellect or from mentality. They're willing to share their intellectual growth with us if we can share our emotions with them. But at the same time, they are afraid of the destructive part of our emotions it could be a beautiful marriage almost, Peter observed, unquote. Again, this speaks to the possibilities of the intention behind this hybridization program. One possibility is that it's to deal with the possibility that we might wipe ourselves out and they would have a way of repopulating the planet or repopulating a different planet with something that was basically human, even if it was a hybrid human. But there's also this possibility that even if we don't get to that point where we blow ourselves up, that this could create a possibility where there would be a new kind of hybrid being that would have the best of both races. That seems to be very much at the center of this, and we should consider both possibilities moving forward. Now, in terms of moving forward and what they have to offer us, again, what's implied here and what many abductees speak to is that they have a vast 
and sophisticated understanding of reality that makes ours pale in comparison. So they have much to offer us in terms of realizing much more about the nature of reality. And speaking to this very point, John Mack is quoted as saying in this book, quote, quite a few abductees have spoken to me of their sense that at least some of their experiences are not occurring within the physical space-time dimensions of the universe as we comprehend it. They speak of aliens breaking through from another dimension, through a slit or crack in some sort of barrier, entering our world from beyond the veil. Abductees, some of whom have little education to prepare them to explain about such abstractions or odd dislocations, will speak of the collapse of space-time that occurs during their experiences. They experience the aliens, indeed their abductions themselves, as happening in another reality, although one that is as powerfully actual to them as or more so than the familiar physical world, unquote. Again, this speaks to the fact that not that this happens outside of reality, but that our notion of reality is truncated, limited, that what they have to give us is a much broader expanse in terms of our understanding. And I would suggest to you that this greater understanding could help eclipse the current physicalist paradigm in which we all seem to be trapped, which is partly causing some of the problems we have as a civilization that seems unmoored from our underlying overarching spiritual connection to all that is. Indeed, that's what many of these beings, not just these ones, but other ones that are reported as being interacted with, very often say that they feel sorry for humanity because we've lost that sense of being connected to source. And that's leading to part of the collective insanity we're engaged in our current affairs, which is leading to so many of our problems. Perhaps even, I would suggest, leading to this cataclysm that these others are warning us about. And to that point, here's another quote from the book. Quote, At the same time, as I noted, abductees become open to the presence of a divine source, which fills their being and gives a sense of connection with a universal consciousness from which they have come and to which they will return. Past life experiences, which extend the sense of self over time in both embodied and unembodied form, create a further expansion of the feeling of what it is to be a human being. Finally, the peculiar sense that many abductees gain during the regressions, that they have a dual human-slash-alien identity, reinforces all the above processes. For the alien self is felt to be a kind of missing part, a soul linked to the universal source or consciousness, the anima mundi from which they have been cut off." Unquote. Towards the end of this book, Max spends some time reflecting on how his perspective on the so-called UFO phenomenon has changed because of his experience with these experiencers in these regression sessions, getting to know these people, getting to become familiar with the overarching themes that arise from these encounters. And he says the following, quote, I am often asked why, if UFOs and abductions are real, the spaceships do not show up in more obvious form. Why don't they land on the White House lawn, is the reigning cliché. The most popular answer to this question among those who take the phenomenon seriously is that the aliens do not dare to manifest themselves more directly. Government leaders would panic, might attack them, and surely would not know how to avoid scaring the rest of us. I believe that there is a better answer to this question, one that is more consistent with the information contained in this book. The intelligence that appears to be at work here simply does not operate that way. It is subtler, and its method is to invite, to remind, to permeate our culture from the bottom up as well as the top down. 
and to open our consciousness in a way that avoids a conclusion that is different from the ways we traditionally require. It is an intelligence that provides enough evidence that something profoundly important is at work, but it does not offer the kinds of proof that would satisfy an exclusively empirical, rationalistic way of thinking. It is for us to embrace the reality of the phenomenon and to take a step forward, appreciating that we live in a universe different from the one in which we have been taught to believe." Unquote. And at the very close of the book, Mack again reflects on how them being here at this point in history had to do with the fact that we are on a course, a collision course, if you will, and that their communication with us, to us, was partly intended to perhaps change this course. But again, it being up to us, ultimately, what we will do with this information. Quoting from the book, quote, The alien beings have come to the abductees from a source that remains unknown to us. We still do not fully grasp their purposes or their methods. It seems clear, however, that they have had to come to us, appearing in material form so that we might know them. Some have speculated that the alien beings have mastered time travel and come to us from the future. Sometimes they even communicate that this might be so. We do not know, but the guiding or regenerative myth of the abduction phenomenon offers a new story for a world that has survived many holocausts and may yet be deterred from a final cataclysm. The abduction phenomenon, it seems clear, is about what is yet to come. It presents quite literally visions of alternative futures, but it leaves the choice to us." Unquote. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacadamian. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian signing out.